Listen closely. What you're hearing is history in the making. The cells right now are operating at 14.7 degrees Celsius, which is much lower than the average operating temperature. From energy, 900 degrees Celsius. <laughs> so from 914. This is not a tiny difference. Right. <laughs> This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Dowenhauer. Today we are talking to FCET, a hydrogen fuel cell company that may have made the breakthrough that that energy sector needs to thrive. And if you want to skip this intro and head straight for the interview, that begins at the 5.30 mark. I want to thank you for joining me today, and I want to thank my friends, family, and close associates for their support when we launched this podcast last week. The biggest challenge when I started was how to produce a program that could engage everyone. So I sent it to my mom my dad, my dear sweet Aunt Kip, my buddies from my oil field days, my lobbyist friends from Austin, and my friends who aren't in the industry. And basically I texted them with the links and no explanation in the question, does this make sense to you? Well, I was surprised that more of them did than I anticipated. Although last week's episode was a little tricky. You see, we were describing maps with data and that was difficult to describe on this medium. But I did take several pictures during that visit and they are up on the official website, energy cast.com under episodes and today's episode has even more pictures so let's talk about the technology today fuel cells and specifically fuel cells fueled by hydrogen like me you've been hearing about these for the last 10 years or so and chances are you haven't seen too many of them but if any company can change that it's the firm we're meeting today for those who aren't familiar hydrogen fuel cells are a lot like batteries they both use chemical energy to make electricity according to my research well a five second search on google that is. The main difference between the two is that a battery will run down as the electro dissolves. A fuel cell keep going and going and as go. long as there's fuel in the cell and unlike a rechargeable battery there's no recharge time fuel cells come in many shapes and sizes although there are two prominent types proton exchange membranes pems they're the cheaper variety they have a plastic membrane and they don't have to reach super high temperatures to operate and they would typically be found in cars however they require ultra pure hydrogen to operate and they aren't as efficient as the second type. That again would be the solid oxide variety or for the remainder of this program, the SOFCs. They are far more efficient they don't require the super clean hydrogen as the PEMs, and that's where the potential lies. However, all SOFCs to this point require incredibly high temperatures to operate, over 1600 degrees Fahrenheit. That's more than enough to melt aluminum. These fuel cells require a membrane to operate. In these common high temperature fuel cells, it's a type of ceramic. But the folks at FCET, an Atlanta-based company we're speaking to today, have found a new type of membrane that is ultra thin, which allows the operating temperature to be far below those of traditional SOFCs. In fact, the sound you heard at the beginning of the show... The cells right now are operating at 14.7 degrees Celsius, which is much lower than the average operating temperature. From energy, 900 degrees Celsius. <laughs> we witnessed voltage being created by an SOFC at 60 degrees Fahrenheit, cooler than room temperature. Now, there are some other issues involved here. The first and probably biggest issue involves a fuel cell's 
fuel, and that would be hydrogen. Hydrogen occurs naturally nowhere on Earth. It must be produced. You can crack water electrically, and that's called electrolysis. There are a few chemical reactions and even a fermentation method, but the most common way we make hydrogen today on an industrial scale is steam reformation. In that process, we take natural gas, hit it with steam, and get hydrogen and carbon monoxide. That pair of gases is commonly called a syngas, and we will discuss that on future episodes when it comes to biofuels and clean coal technology. Now, speaking of clean coal technology, when I worked for those guys about 10 years ago, we advocated for hydrogen production using coal because you could gasify coal. Same thing, hydrogen and carbon monoxide are produced, as well as carbon dioxide. If you could sequester carbon dioxide or utilize it in a saleable fashion, then you can power fuel cells from coal. And on the other end of the spectrum, you can also produce hydrogen using electrolysis, that was the water cracking technology, from concentrated solar thermal plants, which you can imagine has a lot of interest. Now, one of the questions I'm going to ask FCET is the need to convert natural gas to hydrogen. Natural gas is an energy source into itself. Hydrogen is also an energy source into itself. And I also talk a little bit about the keys to success to a good startup. I tried my hand as an entrepreneur about two years ago and nearly got it bitten off. I think I can say that this startup is already going a lot better. So let's get to the main event. Okay, enough of that. FCET is a startup based in Alpharetta, Georgia. That's about 30 miles up the road from Atlanta. Their team consists of their chairman, Paul Fisher, who I met here in Charlotte about a year ago, and we run into each other all the time. Their technology officer is Mikhail Pozvenkov, a Russian scientist and all-around good guy. The fuel cell FCET developed is called the Poz Cell, in honor of Dr. Pozvenkov. On March 17th, they conducted a demonstration of the Paz cell at Catawba College in Salisbury, North Carolina, between Charlotte and Raleigh. And that's where I caught up with the third member of their team, their president, Mark Deininger. We're here with Mark Deininger, mm -hmm. uh, president here of FCET. First of all, FCET, tell us what that stands for and tell us really what you guys do. Fuel cell enabling technologies. I started looking for um, technologies when the Soviet Union collapsed. I was the first American ever invited to their Cape Canaveral. And, and the Russians liked me because they said, we've got all of this technology. We have hundreds of billions invested in these technologies. But every time we try to work with, with an American or a Western European, it becomes public domain and we have no claim on it. I went through over 3,000 technologies to find this. In the course of uh, six or seven years, this thing just came out of the, through a side door and the original inventor of this had, had worked on it for 20 years in Russia. And the original technology prevented carbon fouling on spark plugs. And our patent attorneys in Atlanta looked at this and they said, this is a new material. We've never seen anything like this. You, where did this come from, area? 51. 51? <laughs> in Roswell? I said, well, no, I live in Roswell, Georgia not Roswell, New Mexico. And then at low temperatures, you treat it, you can treat glass, you can treat steel, you can treat any metals, and you have a thin film that's bonded and attached at the molecular level to any inorganic surface. And when I saw what we had, I set up a new company called C3, uh, Chemical Composite Coatings. Now I went to Oakland. What year was this, I'm sorry? This was in 2000. Okay. Well, we have a, we coated uh, the inside of a coker plant and the, the coke formed, but it slid up, slid out like potato chips. I go to Oak Ridge 
And they said, you need to look at fuel cells. And I said, what's so special about this? And they said, well, fuel cells have to have thick, it has to be impervious, impervious to hydrogen leakage. So it has to be very thick. And the reason it has to be thick is their crystallite size of the YSC is about 10, 20, 30 microns. And I said, how big are our crystallites? And he said, they're six nanometers. They're a thousand times smaller, which means you can go a thousand times thinner. And I said, well, what does that mean? He says, that means you're a thousand times more ionically conductive. That means you can go to lower temperatures. So I, st I called Posenkoff and I said, well, you ready to get started again? He said, yeah. Is he still in Russia? No, no, he, said, he worked with me in, at C3. Okay. He, he's been with me since uh, 2000. Mm -hmm. He said, yeah, what do you want to do? I said, well, I got $50,000. Let's um, set up a wet lab in my kitchen and set up a little furnace in my garage. So we set it up in my garage. I think the neighbors thought it was breaking bad. I think they thought we had a meth lab. You were cooking. But, yeah. we were cooking. <laughs> but it, it didn't happen. So we go to University of South Carolina. Posenkoff has our coupon and he puts it in this mass spectroscopy machine. And Mike says, Turn it, start it at 300 degrees Celsius. And he says, impossible. He says, we've never tested below 600. So he sets it at 650, he leaves the room and Mike recalibrates recal it to 250. <laughs> and he turns it on and we're beginning to get signals below 300. Not much, you know, but it, it, it proved that what we had was what we thought we had. Now, the second part of a fuel cell is not just the electrolyte. We had to develop anode and cathode materials. Now, other fuel cells, because they're high temperature, uh, and it's, these are expensive exotic materials. Well, Mike Posenkoff didn't have to use ceramics. He just used metal, cheap metals. And we're the only solid oxide fuel cell anywhere in the world that has the same materials for its anode and its cathode. So you can see how scalable and how, how inexpensive the manufacturing process is for that. And so we keep increasing power density and we're able to drive down temperatures. So in 2015, you can see our operating temperature is 420. That's unheard of. And then after that on the video, uh, we lit up the light again at 320. So for the last year and a half, we've been designing ways to build a pilot plant, finding out what equipment we're going to need, what quality assurance we, we can, and we're assembling people that can launch this thing. And we're looking for a location to do that. Let's talk about fuel cell technology at this point. There are two kinds of fuel cells, essentially a proton exchange membrane right. and a solid oxide fuel cell, which is what uh, where you fall in. Tell us just real quickly about those two technologies. Yep, uh, PEMs, uh, protein exchange membranes, they're, they're light and they operate at fairly low temperatures, 180 Fahrenheit. And because they're light, they don't need shielding for, for, for heat. They're used by automotive manufacturers. Solid oxide fuel cells operate at very high temperatures and they need shielding and they need, uh, and, and it's heavy and it's weighty. And it's only good until now stationary uses because of the weight. The advantages though of solid oxide fuel cells over PEMs is they use about 40% less hydrogen and the type of hydrogen they use, um, it costs about half as much. PEMs are very sensitive. They need 5,9 hydrogen, 99.998%. Our advantage is if we can operate at those low temperatures, we'll beat out PEMs too. And so you have a way to improve upon the solid oxide fuel cells so they don't double as a radiator, essentially. Let's talk about that heat. Bloom Energy and, and, and almost all solid oxide fuel cells, they generate about half of their energy from hydrogen in the form of heat. It's not electricity. And they're getting up to 900 C, 1600, yeah. 1600 F 
for those so, people at home. So they may get at 40% of the hydrogen in, in direct current, but 40% is heat, and they have to spend money to capture it. So what do they do? They use they, they use the heat to, to generate steam to drive magnetotechnology to make, make energy, but they lose about half of that, so they may wind up with about 60% energy efficiency. We start out at about 80% efficiency, and we don't need cogeneration equipment. It cuts out half the cost of our of fuel cell system. So what are the next steps for PawCell and FCET? We have people like Keith Barsons here on, on the uh, Hydrail, and we've talked to the Federal Republic of Germany, and they're turning a lot of their uh, trains into hydrogen-driven locomotion because it's uh, it's green. They're using, they have, they're using wind turbines at night to electrolyze water to turn it into hydrogen to run their trains because they have surplus electricity at night. And um, they're using PEM. Well, what we want to do is build our pilot plant to begin turning out one kilowatt units for field testing on the train right here at UNCC to beat out PEMs so we can get an arrangement with Siemens that is building these trains for, for uh, the Federal Republic of Germany to use our fuel cell as opposed to what they're doing now. And that goes for natural gas. We have uh, the fourth largest holder of natural gas holdings in the, in the U.S. and in Houston that want our fuel cells to run their production sites. And the reason is they use uh, natural gas generators to make electricity to pull it out and they're noisy and they're leaky and they have huge methane re uh, release. And ours are quiet and there's no there's no methane release, so it, it meets all of the uh, EPA regulations, and they're willing to pay a premium for that. And we have, you know, hospitals, we have cell phone towers, we have endless variety of, of potential customers, but we need a pilot plant. We're building these things by hand. And we're raising $5 million to semi-automate this so we can build the one kilowatt units and have uh, quality control. And through automation, you can get uniformity, okay? Everything's the same. So once we, once we get the capital, we'll build a pilot plant, put them in the field, and we'll be overwhelmed with orders from many markets. One of the biggest challenges with fuel cells is the need for hydrogen, right? right. Sometimes not very easy to come by, which, which itself requires energy to make. And it's also an energy source in itself. So this is a two-part question. First question is, what progress have we seen to make hydrogen more readily available and more inexpensive? Hydrogen's very available. California has their buses running on hydrogen and cars that are running on PEMs can go to the station and, and tank up on hydrogen. And that's becoming more and more uh, uh, viable. But all hydrogen is is reformed natural gas. They run it through tubes and steam heat it. And they have uh, carbon dioxide and water come off one end and hydrogen off the other and a little carbon monoxide. The problem with reforming natural gas is you can't have a reformer at everybody's house because there's economies of scale. So the, the way to make hydrogen is not have independent reformers at every site where your fuel cell is. It's simply to buy it from the from the manufacturers and just and deliver it. We have a partner in Houston, so all he's got to do is take our fuel cell out there on a skid, deliver it, deliver the hydrogen, and every couple, three months go out and replace the hydrogen and do some warranty work on it. So I guess the second part of that would be you're making hydrogen for the fuel cell by reforming natural gas. So I guess some people might be thinking, well, why wouldn't you just 
consume the natural gas or the hydrogen after that? Why go that extra step for the fuel cell? Well, they can do that to some uh, some extent on um, at, at 900 degrees, okay? But we can't do natural gas at the low temperatures that we're at, okay? So there's a, there's a trade-off there, but the cost of, of producing hydrogen in bulk is not a big deal. Let me explain it like this. If you're, if you're running a gas generator at a wellhead off of uh, natural gas, you're getting about 20% energy efficiency. If you've got a fuel cell there and it's operating at 80% energy efficiency, you're using one-fourth the amount of natural gas. Well, to reform natural gas into hydrogen isn't that expensive. So the trade-off is, is in our favor. Even if we're only 30% more energy efficient than the, the current method of burning natural gas, we still beat them out by reforming it to hydrogen because of our efficiencies. So you're more efficient reforming into hydrogen, consuming the hydrogen in the fuel cell than because you would be just combusting the, uh, the natural gas. Yeah, because right? we, we use less reformed natural gas to make hydrogen than current technologies have to use in burning hydrogen. And we've also heard about this idea of creating more hydrogen by uh, hydrolysis using solar power, right? And I think that's even on your website or in even one of your uh, your documents, well, right? Yeah, like I said, the Federal Republic of Germany has a huge amounts of wind and the electric usage needs are, are very low. And they, they can't store it in batteries because the batteries have limited storage capacity and they degrade over time. So they got the broad idea of let's turn it into hydrogen, which doesn't degrade, and there's no limit on how much it can store. You can do the same with solar and you can do the same with other things, but there's a lot of technologies out there on the cusp of, of getting to the point where you can use catalyzed water and sunlight to make hydrogen. Can you use the same kind of tanks for storing hydrogen as you would for, say, a propane or a CNG? Yeah. And actually, there's there you can store more weight because hydrogen is so much uh, lighter. Uh, lighter and so much more energy in it than in natural gas. You can get a lot bigger bang for the buck. And there's a new technology out that we're looking at that they can store hydrogen in solid state. It's like a sponge, and it's, it's very stable. And what you do is you increase the temperature a few degrees, and it releases some hydrogen and so that's uh, that's something that's um, would be very safe very effective and it's 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 uh, it'll be on the market next year where do fuel cells fit in the mix I mean one of the things we talked about was them being at the substations next to solar farms where you'd be able to have stored capacity of some sort to run when maybe renewables are intermittent is that kind of where you can see them yeah I think on microgrids it, there's it's a good combination with wind and solar because instead of batteries you make hydrogen to run the fuel cell. Or you can use batteries, but you also have fuel cells operating off of the hydrogen that you bring in because fuel cells make power 24-7. So it means you need a smaller footprint, fewer solar panels, and fewer windmills. And it's a better mix because if something breaks down at the windmill stops or the sun doesn't come out, you've got a uh, assured source of energy. Well, one of the things I was going to ask you about was uh, startups. I've done a startup and got my butt kicked, and I think it just was because I work with creeps and um, that really makes a difference doesn't it to be successful it's a three-legged stool. You need a very strong technology that can be patent protected. Because if you've got the best technology in the world, but it's not patent protected, you invest money in it, and someone bigger and meaner than you is going to take it from you. The second thing you need is a very grounded management team that cover all the bases. And most importantly, 
the hardest thing to do for a startup is get it from concept, or I say from the lab, to the street. And of course, the third thing you need is capital. I started out with my own money, credit card debt, mortgaged my house, brought in angels. Then as we as we progressed and we get we may got patents issued and began making certain benchmark, then high net worth individuals got interested. In our case, probably half of our capital is from uh, physicians. So that's important is to go to the right audience, people that can understand and appreciate your invention. And without all three of those legs, the stool will fall over and, and it will be a failure. I have my little lightning round. I like to do this with all the different fuel sources. Uh, this will be real quick, just basically five second answer. Uh, all the different energy sources, what first comes to mind? Natural gas. Oh, that's, that's the future. That's the future of energy until we get to the point of turning uh, uh, water into hydrogen. Crude oil. That'll be around for a long time. Nuclear. I think nuclear is uh, good. I think it's a good thing. Coal. Uh, coal's on the way out. It's too much carbon. Wind. Wind is probably at about where it should be. There hasn't been a uh, wind. It has been growth in that market. It's they're still building windmills, but it's flat. So it's kind of reached its technological plateau. Solar. Solar's doing well, and they, as long as they keep driving costs down, it, it'll be with us a long time. Biofuels. Biofuels are very limited compared to what you get out of the ground. So it's a small, it's a niche. <laughs> Fuel cells. Fuel cells are a niche right now and because they're too too expensive and they have too many limitations. But once our fuel cell breaks out, that's going to be at the leading edge of distributed energy globally. Hydroelectric. Hydroelectric is great. It's green, it's clean, but it's, uh, it's limited. It's not going to grow. Geothermal. Geothermal is limited as well. But it's, it's good. It's a good technology. It's steam generation. Electric vehicles. Electric vehicles, I like them, you know, uh, but right now the problem is if you're in states that where the power grid is fueled by coal, it's not as green as people say they are. But they do have, on balance, it's greener than driving with gasoline, but it's not as good as, uh, as the, all the hype is about them in terms of avoiding climate change. Whereas if the uh, energy at the power grid is generated by fuel cells um, off of natural gas, uh, it would be probably probably eight times cleaner uh, to drive those cars than is currently possible. Nuclear fusion. I haven't studied it. I hear a lot about it, but my scientists tell me, the ones that I believe in, that it's um, it's a hoax. So, Mark Deininger, thank you so much. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. There you have it, my interview with Mark Deininger, president of FCET. Again, that demonstration was at Catawba College in Salisbury, North Carolina, and it was a busy day for them as they were also presenting to investors. So I'm grateful to them for giving me their time. I also want to thank Paul Fisher for setting this up and Dr. Posvankov for showing me the fuel cell a little bit more hands-on. There are tons of pictures of the presentation out on our website, energy-cast.com. Just click episodes. You can also reach me at host at energy cast.com. Music was composed by Sean Stroop, and you can reach him at Stroop Loops. That's S-T-R-O-O-P-E Loops. Be sure to join us next week when we get into a little energy policy with a DC think tank. I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.